This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, March 20th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. This is a podcast in appreciation of the great Austrian economist Israel Kirzner. And who better to talk about him than someone who's learned so much from him? George Mason University economics professor Pete Betke. We spoke last week. This podcast is apropos of exactly nothing. There is no news hook, although, you know, After I reached out to you, I noticed that uh, the subject of our podcast celebrated a birthday, uh, which was not, again, not a hook for this discussion. This is a podcast in appreciation of Israel Kirzner, uh, who I think I first became acquainted with, with lectures that he had given for at the Foundation for Economic Education uh, many years ago. And I became acquainted with uh, a bunch of his ideas, in particular, the Kirznerian entrepreneur. Uh, before, but before we get into that specifically, what, what should we appreciate about the work of Israel Kirzner? Well, that's a great question, Caleb. I mean, there is Kirzner the scholar. For those of us who pursue an academic path, he represents a kind of old school scholar that took his craft very seriously. I had the amazing opportunity to work with him very closely for eight years at at New York University. And I don't know in my entire career whether I have ever met a more dedicated person to the craft of teaching and of seriousness of scholarship and, and whatnot. And so that's the lesson to academics, I think. But, you know, not 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 everyone's an academic and those are very personal characteristics. And so I think that to the general audience, it's the quality of his mind communicated in his attention to detail and argument and the uh, sort of generosity he had in dealing with his critics um, and the way that he always presented their argument in the best possible light, steel manned it, as we say today, uh, rather than straw manned it. And so he's an exemplar, I think, of the scholarly life and also of the rigorous way to approach, um, you know, this, the subject matter of economics. And I'll say one other thing, which is that uh, is very out of fashion today. Um, but Kirzner cares about the extended conversation in economics that goes all the way back to before Adam Smith to today and and the carefulness with which he interacted with various texts through the years um, and the, the content of the arguments in those texts. And, um, you know, that's his dissertation, right? His dissertation was a topic given to him by Mises, which is to survey the history, intellectual history of what people meant when they said that they were doing economics. And, you know, the title of that's called The Economic Point of View. And it surveys all the the various ways in which people have defined what it is that our subject matter is as economists. And so he's very, very rigorous in that. I was reading through some some highly cited uh, paragraphs that Kirzner had written. I come across one that I thought was uh, particularly notable and a point that I think a lot of people don't really appreciate. Uh, He writes, 
This was from 1979. He wrote, A free society is fertile and creative in the sense that its freedom generates alertness to possibilities that may be of use to society. A restriction on the freedom of a society numbs such alertness and blinds society to possibilities of social improvement. By the very nature of the damage such restrictions wreaks, its harmful effects on social welfare may not be able to be noticed, measured, or specified. Um, he talks about this alertness a lot. That seems to be a big uh, theme. That is, alertness as a tool for directing the activities of entrepreneurs and how fragile that alertness can be. We're sensitive to the environment. Yes. Uh, but I, I think that you should, um, to, you know, there's, there's Kirzner, the technical economist who's trying to address a fundamental problem within standard market theory and the and price theory. And then there's also the broader, implications of what Kirzner's talking about, about an entrepreneurial society. And so when we think about uh, what is all entailed in alertness, the passage that you're talking about also entails creativity. So, you know, one of my favorite chapters in Hayek's writings is the creative powers of a free civilization, the second chapter, I believe, in the, in the Constitution of Liberty. And one of the key things in that chapter is how we unleash the entrepreneurial spirit, right? And, 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 and whatnot. And he uses an example, he quotes uh, from one of his students, uh, Sir Arthur Lewis, uh, about the role of entrepreneurs and how they're always going to be the minority uh, in the society because they're seeing things different. Uh, they're going to face barriers and, and whatnot, but they overcome those and they, they do these acts of creativity and they bring forth um, all the amazing uh, cornucopia of economic progress that we see. So in this way, Kirzner and Julian Simon are in some sense flip sides of the same thing, right? Because Kirzner's issue about alertness is really what Simon is getting at is about the ultimate resource is the human imagination. And so I think that, you know, you have to be able to dig into Kirzner as a pure theorist in economics, talking to other pure theorists in economics, but then also what are the broader implications that Kirzner sees from his contribution to economics, or as he would put it, the contribution that he sees in Mises and Hayek. You know, he's a very humble uh, person, so he always credits his teachers rather than himself with his, his innovations, yeah. When he's also projecting this idea of uh, humility when it comes to crafting policy, the implications for policy here couldn't be bigger. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, the, the, like you just said uh, about that passage, one of the things that's stark about it is this issue of, um, about what happens when we stifle uh, the human creativity. Um, we don't even know what the pure con like what the consequences are of that because that's the path that wasn't pursued, right? And so we we stifle human creativity, we stifle our ability to fix things. I mean, I, I you know to use a very stark example, and I don't mean to be you know sort of controversial or, or anything on this, which is just over COVID. Uh, you know, one of the really interesting things about what happened with COVID was that the lack of variation 
in the experiments of how to cope with a really serious problem meant that we forego various different entrepreneurial solutions, which we don't even know could have happened, right? Just because we imagine that they couldn't happen that way. And so we don't see how it is that that creative and clever individuals would have found ways to be able, and even even with the restrictions, we saw amazing entrepreneurship, right? I mean, think about how the restaurants came up with like, you know, various different bubbles or whatever, the way that, you know, they they came up with ways to secure your ability to eat out and and feel safe and, and whatnot. And so we saw a tremendous amount of it, but we didn't see as much as we would have had we had more variation in the experimentation. What did Kersner or in his career, what has Kirzner written about uh, economic justice? And what is his conception of it? So he has a, a, a whole book on this, on distributive justice, um, and, um, and, and, you know, what Kirzner tries to defend there. And he also has some other pieces where he's trying to defend the concept of pure profit. You know, which is a is a big issue in intellectual history. What is the justification for profit? Um, and so, you know, in classical economics, we had you know various activities, and then they had rewards that went with those activities. So, you know, land generates rent, uh, labor generates wages, right? Capital generates interest, and then entrepreneurship generates profit, right? But the question is, is that we normally think of proud profits as being just normal rates of return, right? And so we, we end up by having in competitive markets what we might call a zero profit condition, which really what it means is that if you're in a supermarket line and you're waiting to check out, that the lines will tend to equate, right? Because if you see an opportunity over there, you'll go there. And so, so we end up by getting these equalization of the rates of return. That, that's basically the idea. And what Kirshner was trying to do was justify, you know, the idea of super normal profits, the idea that there would be these, these big profit opportunities that people could grasp. And he settled on this idea of what he called the finder's keepers ethic. So his notion was, is that, we needed to make sure that the individual who discovered the profit opportunity was able to, in fact, reap the rewards from their discovery. And if we curtail them from reaping the rewards, what we do is we don't we just don't get the profit opportunity. We don't get the right. So it's not like we just get a, a cheaper version of it or whatever, or a more redistributed version of it. It's that these things don't come about unless the human actor recognizes them and acts on them, right? And uh, so, you know, Chris Coyne and I have a monograph that we wrote many years ago on entrepreneurship. Um, and we try to argue that there's three sort of unique moments in entrepreneurship. There's serendipity, there's search, and there's seizing. And what we mean by that is the serendipity is the alertness, right? I recognize an opportunity, an aha moment. Uh, and then the search is my judicious and prudent application of resources to try to produce 
you know, with the least cost methods to, you know, produce that output, which is going to yield this, uh, you know, in response to that opportunity. And then seizing is I have to seize the profit opportunity, right? So that a pure and penniless entrepreneur doesn't remain pure and penniless. They have to be able to, to seize it and everything like that. Kersner, as a pure theorist, focused most of his energy on the serendipity. Because that's the essence of the entrepreneurial recognition is the recognition of the opportunity for a profit. But Kersner, in a broad theory and as a distributive justice issue, is talking about what are the implications of the fact that when I go to seize the profit opportunity, right, what if society tells me that you didn't earn that? Well, what Kersner's argument is, is that if I don't allow that finder's keeper's ethic, what's going to happen is I'm going to cut off my alertness to that opportunity. Going back to your point about the sensitivity aspects of this. So, it, yeah. it's, it sounds a lot like uh, what Deidre McCloskey would describe as respect for yes. the entrepreneur. Respect, dignity for those who give it a go, as McCloskey would put it. Uh, Deirdre is, is you know, brilliant on these issues. So uh, for the modern you know, student, uh, she would be the go-to person. Um, but also Matt Ridley is very good. Uh, Matt Ridley has a book called How Innovation Works. And Ridley has a line in that that I love that says that innovation is the child of freedom and the parent of prosperity. So I, I just love that line. Um, but Deirdre, I think, has multiple lines uh, that, you know, I could we could spend a, 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 the whole day quoting from her uh, about this, but her notion of affording dignity to the act of giving it a go and the uniqueness and that in human history as the, the trigger that sets off the great uh, sort of enrichment. I think it's just a, it's an amazing contribution to our knowledge. So what did Kersner view uh, throughout his career as the role of Policymakers. This is a policy podcast, but we yeah. uh, w- policymakers, presumably in keeping with the uh, tradition of uh, uh, Menger and Mises and and Hayek and others, uh, presumably quite humble. It's very humble. I think there's two roles that Kersner sees. The first one is the economist as a policy analyst, and in that he follows his teacher Mises and that we should pursue strict value freedom. We treat ends as given, assess the effectiveness of of chosen means to those given ends. End of story. Not the normative aspect of things as an economist, just the pure positive. Kersner goes so far as to say that basically that it's only because we have a value neutral economics that we might have a value relevant political economy, all right? And so we have to have this science of economics, and that's based on strict means-ends analysis as the economist. The policymaker that is the more, you know, uh, not the analyst, but the maker, is to pick rules, never particular distributions. So you can't choose particular distributions like as if your kids are coming home from Halloween and there's one last Snicker bar And you say to your one son, you know, my sons are Matthew and Stephen, so I'll use those names. You know, I say to Matt, Matt, you know, use you, uh, you know, uh, cut and Stephen, you choose. 
right? That would lead to a fair distribution, right? Because Matt, who wants to maximize the Snicker bar, knows that if he, you know, tries to rip off Stephen by cutting a bigger piece, Stephen will take the bigger piece. So Matt measures it exactly. It's it's 12 inches. So right at six inches, he's like slicing it down to the millimeter. So it's perfectly divided. A lot of people think that's what our policies are supposed to do. But our policies aren't like that. We don't have distribution separate from the production of the Snicker bar itself. And the way we cut the Snicker bar is going to determine the size of the Snicker bar that we have. And so all we can do really as economists, as, as excuse me, as policymakers, is actually follow a rule of law that has predictability. Uh, and, 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 you know, and, and we pick these rules, general rules that apply to everyone, not to particular groups, not to put the thumb on the scale of any particular group or anything like that. And that's what we strive as policymakers. So in this regard, it's, it's really the first part of Hayek's, uh, you know, Constitution of Liberty, where he's laying out the argument for the rule of law, predictability. Those are the kind of positions Kirzner has. And then the final thing I'll say about that is, Kirzner is not in the moral sector um, as utilitarian as his, you know, Kirzner, as Mises and Hayek are. He's much more of someone who believes in, in rights, uh, right? I mean, so it's, it's not the same kind of, of person, but he thinks that, you know, so, but he, at the same time, he's not Rothbardian, right? He, but he is the kind of person that believes that individuals have, have rights and those should be respected. But in his distributive justice book, he's playing, he's putting on his hat as a positive economist studying what are the implications of, you know, a world that maybe doesn't recognize the finder's keepers or recognizes the finder keeper. And so a lot of what he's doing is always the implications Given an argument that you're that that someone else provides, what are the implications that follow? And so that's how he analyzes things. But he's jumping into that debate with with Nozick and others about just acquisition and all of that in that distributive justice book. What what would you say if if you had an underappreciated contribution of Israel Kirzner, or or maybe one that maybe is appreciated among Austrian economists, but is not should should be appreciated more broadly. So I think Kirzner should win should have won and should win the Nobel Prize in economics, mainly for a theoretical contribution, uh, which is that he solved a conundrum about how it is that in a world where everyone is a price taker, prices ever adjust to clear markets. This is a conundrum that. Kenneth Arrow laid out in a paper in 1959 on, you know, the, the theory of price adjustments. It's a big problem in economics. And I would say that Kirzner's argument in both a, a 1967 paper and then more fully developed in his classic work, Competition and Entrepreneurship, addresses how it is that we could clear markets. And I think that that issue about the uh, adaptation and adjustment through relative prices um, guided by the entrepreneurial alertness to opportunities for gain, um, is appreciated by economists in their informal discussions, but not in their formal theory rendering. 
And so it, it, it's kind of a, a strange mix. But so I think first and foremost, Kersner, you know, should be recognized for what he did. But I think that going back to what you just talked about, probably the 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 two works that are least appreciated but are are very important is his contributions to capital theory in which he stresses very strongly the idea about the the plan and basically this a subjectivist understanding or rendering of the idea that in in putting together heterogeneous and multi-specific capital goods the economic actor has to have a plan, right, about what it is that they imagine is the future products and goods and services that they're going to do. And it's that consolation of the resources that go into that that constitute the capital structure in your economy. And that capital structure is very sensitive, again, to all kinds of various relative price changes in the economy and the way it adapts and adjusts and morphs in one direction or another direction. You know, those kind of things, again, Kersner's discussion there, I think, is important. And then distributive justice. And I'll, I'll wrap this up by saying the following thing that I hope can maybe be clear to general audience. Kersner, in an essay called The Meaning of Market Process, makes a distinction between the underlying variables of the market, which are tastes, technology, and resource availability, and the induced variables of the market, which are prices, profit and loss statements, and the pattern of resource ownership. And what his argument is, is that in equilibrium, the induced variables and the underlying variables dovetail with one another, right? They dovetail with one another. But what his argument is, and I think it, it, it really explains how it is that markets work, is that any time there's a disjoint between the underlying and the induced, there's a profit opportunity, all right, for an individual who recognizes that gap and then enters into the market to close that gap. And so as a result, the economic theory is always moving us in the direction of the induced variables, you know, mapping on to the underlying variables. But we're constantly full of a, a ceaseless change, changes in technology, changes in taste, changes in resource availability. And so as a result, the, the economy is always more like uh, a dog chasing after a rabbit in your front lawn. We know the tendency and direction in which the, the dog's going to go. But as it, you know, as it moves, the rabbit moves and then the dog goes another way. So what we have in economics is a theory of tendencies and direction but not of exact points. And the implications of that are huge in terms of the way we think about command and control and other things, because those rely on having an economics of exact points rather than of tendencies and directions. So that Kersner's I think is brilliant. It sounds like infinite dogs and infinite rabbits interacting <laughs> and affecting one another constantly on an ongoing churn. So Hayek has a great line. I'm going to get it wrong, uh, So, but you can look this up. It's, he says something like, the, mar the, be the benefit of the market is the, it's not so much the adaption to change, but the, the need or the necessity for constant readaptation 
to the adaption and adjustment of ceaseless change. So it's not just like there's a shock and then I adapt. That's you know how a lot of people think about, oh, you know, I'm going to talk about change in economics. And what Hayek's argument is, is that it's not that adaptation, it's the readaptation of our adaptations to the fact that we're constantly having to adjust to ceaseless change in the underlying you know, variables, which means that the market has to actually be constantly flexible and adaptable and the individuals have to be for you know constantly alert to the opportunities and if they're not alert then the next person will be alert to fill in for them and so you know uh, I mean this is a little too insider baseball but I love this recent paper by Brian Author who is a economist at the Santa Fe Institute famous for his work on complexity economics and he published a paper in January called economics and nouns versus economics and verbs. And it's in the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization in January of 2023. And what his argument is, is that we practice economics and nouns, which is economics of states of affairs. And we can talk endlessly about optimality conditions or whatever, right? But what we don't have is an economics of verbs, which is activity. And in order for us to make progress in economic science, we have to do economics of activity, of, of, of adjustment, of, of, of change, of complexity. And I, you know, I think he ha he's really got his finger on something there. And he acknowledges that the Austrians are the, you know, one of the only ones that have this theory. And so you asked me about underrating, you know, obviously I'm, I'm biased, you know, no doubt, but I think Austrian economics is underrated. <laughs> I, you know, and so as a result, Israel Kirzner is underrated. Mario Rizzo is underrated. Larry White's underrated. Uh, Don Lavoie is underrated because, you know, they are the sort of modern, you know, people that did Austrian economics at a very high level. And, you know, people should like appreciate more of their contributions about what they're, they're uh, you know, what they did and, or and what they're continuing to do. And so to me, I think that's the, the, the crucial issue. And, and by the way, that also means Deirdre McCloskey is underrated uh, because Deirdre has in the second part of her career, uh, been very influenced by the Austrians and incorporated, uh, you know, uh, from her Chicago price theory grounding, she's incorporated a heck of a lot of Austrian economics in what she says. Pete Betke directs the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. We spoke last week. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.